0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: There's a, an image that comes out of in, in 12 steps sometimes where you're sitting in the back seat and someone's driving erratically driving the car radically and what you're doing is dr- rolling the window up and down this is back when you know you could you had the the hand crank for the window you're rolling the window up and down trying to control the car and that becomes kind of a metaphor for the rest of your life where you feel sort of out of control and you're constantly grabbing for these things that will give you the illusion of control but they don't actually give you any control because you're looking again I, I think as you aptly point you're looking outside of yourself you're looking for someone to kind of give you the right system give you the right method give you the right sense of authority the right air of of mysticism or whatever it is and then if i do it the right way then i will feel right then things will be okay and the irony is that some of these things work this week on the podcast we're airing a special
2: four-part series on the cult of personal development so many of us pick up books and go to seminars in the hopes of improving our lives and that's not necessarily a bad thing But it can be when we're not aware of how it can actually lead to a lot of bad things when we let charismatic leaders take advantage of us and manipulate us. So we decided to bring in former cult members to dissect this process and explain how this actually happens so that you can avoid it. So one thing I've realized after so many years of hosting this show, is that you hear my voice every week, but I don't hear yours. And I'd really like to hear from you. For this episode, I'm excited to start something totally new called an airspace. An airspace is an audio group chat hosted by me and Bob, where you can send us an audio message. And when we reply, it'll show up in the main thread. I'll be using airspace for the next few days to talk more with Bob about toxic charisma and also answer your questions about this episode on charismatic leaders who are toxic. Click on the first link in the description to send me your questions now and view the conversation so far. And when we answer, you'll actually get an email letting you know. You can also be part of the airspace by going to unmistakablecreative.com slash participate. Bob, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. I love talking to you.
2: Well, likewise, and you are one of those rare guests who now uh, can claim that you've been on the unmistakable creative three times because we've had you, we've had you and Alex together. Um, and this time I wanted to bring you back uh, as part of this series that I'm doing on the cult of personal development um, to talk about the sort of darker sides of personal development that I think nobody wants to acknowledge and uh obviously you know before we get into all of that you know i like to start with questions that seem like they have nothing to do with your work but actually this time i think this is actually quite relevant um and that is what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career
1: oh fascinating so i was raised in the suburbs of philadelphia in the presbyterian church um we, we weren't super serious but we were you know every pretty much every sunday we'd go and then you know have milkshakes and grilled cheese sandwiches afterwards and I like to think of it as, uh, or I do think of it as kind of the, um, because of where we were, we were in a very upper middle class suburb of Philadelphia. And if you're familiar with like the prosperity gospel, this idea that the the more righteous you are, the better you do. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't explicit at all in the church I was raised in, but there was very much a judgment, right? It was, it was very culturally, like we are, good Americans we don't talk about sex we don't uh experiment with drugs except for lots of alcohol and um <laughs> and and we we and and there you know i guess i was raised like thinking about a lot seeing a lot of hypocrisy around me and mm. uh you know pious on sunday and then people talking you know smack about each other behind each other's back or people you know screwing people over in business and these kinds of things
2: yeah.
1: and i really w- i I uh, was kind of part of the church enthusiastically for a little while because I've always been something of a spirit had had an interest in, in a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I left it, you know, pretty quickly. I, I feel like almost like most of my life has has been a reaction against the church that I was raised in.
2: Yeah. Yeah something I wonder uh, is sort of when in your life you started to really look at this through the lens of spirituality, because, you know, I, I've said before that, you know, if somebody had even told me half the things I talk about with my guests on Unmistakable well, creative when I was at Berkeley in my 20s, I'm like, this all sounds like a bunch of new age bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's the work that I literally do today. Uh, so, you know, how old were you when you started to sort of have these questions uh, about life and spirituality?
1: Oh, I think I was really young. I mean, I think I've always had a, a kind of a esoteric or spiritual yearning or the sense that, you know, wanting to engage with the unseen world or, or really in some ways also looking for instruction, you know, like, like what makes a good life? How can I be a good person? Um, I think it was, you know, maybe that's my, my WASPy upbringing, but I, I had a, a a great deal of shame Mm. and I think I was always looking for the system. So while I reacted against the system that I was raised in, I think I was always looking for a new system. So re- very early on and in, in maybe well, in freshman year of college, I was actually a, a religion major because they didn't have a philosophy class at the small liberal arts school I was going to. So I did you know classes in Old Testament and New Testament and then some comparative religion and found William James fairly early on and you know the varieties of, of religious experience. Yeah. I was also a huge fan of uh, a poet named Gary Snyder, who was a friend of Jack Kerouac's and, and um, Allen Ginsberg's. And he had studied Zen in Japan. And so, you know, and I, and it, you know, this was the late eighties, this kind of yoga wasn't really a thing yet. Um, I guess it was, I mean, I was still, I was studying yoga even in high school and also doing Tai Chi in high school. Um, but I think a lot of it was, I was trying to make myself exotic as much as mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out anything else, you know, like in some ways it was just sort of a way to look cool to girls that I wanted to <laughs> talk to. Right. You know, And, and so I got really attached to like, I, you know, I read Jack Kerouac and the Dharma bombs. There's a lot of guys doing their, in their, you know, late teens, early twenties. And, um, and I got really obsessed with this guy, Gary Snyder, who had gone to Japan to study Zen. And I eventually did that myself. I actually sat in the same temple that he did in, in Kyoto, um, for about a, I sat there for about a year, uh, and then also studied martial arts and, in uh, in Kyoto, and then I got very distracted by other things in Kyoto. So, I'd say that you know my my spiritual path has been sort of varied and mm. uh, never committed fully to a single path, except for very very brief periods. Like I'm I'm a I'm I'm very very much a dilettante, but it started early on. I even considered going. I, I know you live in Boulder. Um, I, I visited the Naropa Institute and considered transferring, um, to go to college there and ended up having a conversation with a guy there that totally freaked me out. And, (laughs) and I was like, I, this place is not for me. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about how his heart was being ripped out every day. And I was like, I don't know that I want to have my heart ripped out every day. <laughs> so yeah. Um. So I, I moved on. Um. I also spent a lot of time in nature. So I, I did graduate from a, a school in Arizona called Prescott College, which was very, very oriented towards wilderness studies and the outdoors. And I think that was very much where I truly connected to spirituality was in the outdoors rather than through... You know these various sort of structures that i that i experimented with and and, and dabbled yeah. in you know zen and and various forms of tibetan buddhism and martial arts
2: yeah so there are two things that come from this for for me you know one it's kind of a, an odd paradox since you think that like you spend all this time seeking answers you know outward and almost all of our sort of spiritual texts you know encourage us to turn inwards one why do you think that is and then two I'm curious about the contrast that you saw between sort of religion in a place like Japan versus religion, uh, here in the United States, because I, the, the thing that always comes to my mind is this stupid Indian superstition of not getting our haircuts on Tuesdays. And it's the most ridiculous thing because nobody seems to know why the hell that's the case. And I thought, okay, I'm at an ashram in India. Let me ask these guys. They're like, barber shops are closed in India on Tuesdays. And I'm like, wait a minute, my parents have lived in the Ameri- United States for 25 years and we still don't get our haircuts on Tuesdays. And the answers on Quora were ridiculous from barbers need a day off to, to you know, they need a day to sharpen their blades after cutting all that hair. But, Uh, what I, what I really wonder is, is, you know, what is it that causes people to turn outward rather than inward, uh, first, and then also the contrast between Japan and here?
1: Yeah, well, I, I can't really speak, you know, for others, obviously, but I think for myself, again, I was looking for, I was looking to be fixed. And so I think I was looking for an authority figure, frankly, someone who would tell me the right set of rules. Um, and so, you know, I, I grew up in a very, let's call it a very rule focused household. My, there, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings growing up a little bit of, you know, a fair bit of trauma and drama, uh, that I grew up around. And, um, if, you know, for your listeners, people who have grown up in environments where there is some, you know, let's call it mental illness and addiction, which is definitely the, going on a lot in my family that we end up, there's a, there's a, an a, a, an image that comes out of in, in 12 steps sometimes uh where you're sitting in the back seat and someone's driving erratically driving the car erratically and what you're doing is dr- rolling the window up and down this is back when you know you could you had the the hand crank for the window you're rolling the window up and down trying to control the car and that becomes kind of a metaphor for the rest of your life where you feel sort of out of control but you're constantly and you're constantly grabbing for these things that will give you the illusion of control but they don't actually give you any control because you're looking again, I I think as you aptly point, you're looking outside of yourself. Um, you're looking for someone to kind of give you the right system, give you the right method, give you the right um sense of authority, the right air of of mysticism or whatever it is. And then if I do it the right way, then I will feel right and then I will then things will be okay. And the irony is that some of these things work, right? Like somebody says, sit and meditate for a little while. And you sit and meditate for a little while and that does force you to actually learn how to self-soothe, um, you know, sort of emotional imbalance, which has been one of my problems in life where my emotions have swung very, very, you know, wildly and, and felt I've kind of felt out of control of them. And meditation actually has given me a modicum of control, but -hmm. at the same time, then you become overly dependent on it. Um, I'm really reminded of, uh, if you're familiar with the cargo cults of, uh, of the Pacific islands. Um, do you know the, this metaphor? Or do you know, the, or I don't actually. So the so during the Second World War, um, these Pacific islands became these stop-off points for all of uh, you know both Axis powers as well as the, the the U.S. powers, and all of this cargo started to arrive into these islands. Now, cargo is is actually now a synonym for wealth in like Papua New Guinea. Like if you say how much cargo do you have, you mean how much money do you have or how much wealth do you have? But what happened is is after the war. Um, the cargo dried up obviously because the the islands were no longer really strategically important and so planes didn't stop there anymore but what happened is is the the islanders started to build like bamboo models of planes life-size models of planes as a kind of religion so the idea is is they got the form right you know here's the plane mm-hmm. like they connected prosperity to the plane but they really didn't oh, you know they really they really didn't understand like the mechanism that it was actual planes coming and dropping this stuff off. And so I've heard the same critique in some ways around, like say Buddhism in Japan, that the the, the Japanese got the letter, but they didn't open it. So they have all the forms of that sit around, you yeah. know, this is a not my critique necessarily. This is a, a sort of a gross overgeneralization, but that they missed some of the heart of it. So, when I went to Japan, one of the things I noticed was I had this idea that all Buddhists were vegetarian. They're not, <laughs> um, because I was a vegetarian. I was like very righteous, you know, like I'm going to be a vegetarian. I remember sitting with a Zen priest at a, at a restaurant and he took me to his like favorite restaurant that served pork cutlet. And I said, I was a vegetarian. And he looked at me like just shocked. He's like, wait, what <laughs> you're a vegetarian. And I was like, wait, what yeah. you're a Buddhist. Um, so I think a lot of it was this is a very, very long-winded way, winded way of saying that, um, that I think there's, there's this distinction between what the shape of something is and what and what you really can get out of it. And I think that exists in sort of all religious traditions, right? So many religious traditions are really just about the form of it or the following the letter of the law rather than really engaging with the sort of the, the spiritual or the personal development or whatever you want to call it.
3: Yeah, wow.
2: Yeah, I think you brought up uh, a word that really struck me, and that was this idea of dependency. And I think it's so ironic. And, you know, I've been mentioned this before, Werner Erhard, you know, of the Landmark Forum, he told Dan Kennedy once, he said, you know, when Dan Kennedy said, sum it up for me in one sentence, he said, we sell independence, but we breed dependence. Mm. And I've noticed that. I've noticed how people sort of become personal development junkies. And rather than, you know, self-improvement, improving their life, it becomes their life. And nothing actually changes as a result. What what do you think, based on your own experience, causes that sort of dependency trap?
1: It's hmm. a really good question. Um, again, speaking for myself, you know, I, I, I'm going to go back to emotional maturity and emotional immaturity. This is a, a lens through which I've been looking at myself a lot recently. And one of the things I've noticed is that the times when I've been most dependent is when I've been looking outside of myself to kind of fix something inside of myself, which I, I think that's a, you know, a really interesting dichotomy you've brought up here. But you know, I mean, it can be really straightforward in a in a relationship. I feel bad, and then I go to my partner, and I'm like, "Make me feel good," you know, <laughs> like, and you know, the most let's call it the most abusive I've ever been in a relationship is when my partner has. Like pulled that, you know, she stops looking at me in that way that makes me feel so, you know, soothed for a moment. And then I start berating her. <laughs> it's really makes no freaking sense, right? But I start berating her in a way to give that to me again, right? Like, and, and the typical is like if she criticizes me in some way, I get defensive. You know, this is like going back to John Gottman's work, right? The yeah. defensiveness is sort of the one of the core things that destroys relationships. But that I'll get defensive because what I want is I want to feel good and what I and so what I don't have and and what I la- what I've lacked most of my life or much of my life is an ability to do what psychologists would call self-soothe right so when I feel upset to then feel that feeling be fully mm-hmm. present with that feeling allow myself to really have it process it maybe even do a deep dive and and go underneath it and say, well, what, you know, what are the root causes of this, both sort of developmentally for myself or situationally for where I am right now? What can I actually, what can I, you know, what can I do about it? What can I not do about it? Can I, do I just need to accept it? And, you know, again, I was raised in a family where there wasn't a lot of warm emotions. And certainly when I was emotional there was a lot of disapproval. And so I learned to really distance myself from even my own awareness of how I felt about something. And so when I'm seeking, when I become, when I've become dependent and I've become dependent, you know, as we're, we're going to get to, I think in this conversation where I was in a cult for two years and I was very dependent upon the community and very dependent upon the teacher, what I was dependent upon was approval, right? I needed somebody to tell me that I was a good boy. That I was doing okay. That I was doing a good job. And I think, at least for me, that's where this—you know—I'm I'm looking for a maybe a father figure, a mother figure, you know, to tell me that every that, that I'm okay and that um, I don't <laughs> that I don't need to. I don't know that I that if or that if I do something that they tell me to do then I will be okay. And I think that's really the cult hit right there. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh yeah, you're right. You're not okay. But if you go and sell these courses for me, if you go and clean the center really well, if you, you know, do, you know, this spiritual practice, you know, this many times or something like that, then you will be okay. And you get kind of caught in this, um, you know, sort of endless hedonic loop, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's so fascinating that, you know, you you mentioned sort of authority figures, because even when I think about the seduction community and and my experience with it, I I realize people go there uh, in a desire to improve themselves with women and and dating. And what was hilarious, you know, kind of sad even, was how much time people spent seeking validation from other men, authority Mm -hmm. figures in the community. I said, this is kind of a real odd paradox. You know, now it's become about impressing other guys you know, with your conquest as opposed to actually improving yourself and, you know, being, getting better at dating and relationships.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, we're also like tribal in, you know, and, and even, you know, the primate part of us, you know, seeks to looks for the powerful, you know, person in the, in the environment and wants to curry favor in some way, like being attracted to the person who is most powerful in the environment. I, I do think it's, it's somewhat natural. I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy. I've, I've seen, yeah. and I think we'll talk about this as well. Like what is it that makes a leader a positive influence versus a negative influence? Cause I think we've just seen so many examples in the last few years wow. of leaders you know, whether it's, you know, a predator like Harvey Weinstein, who led an industry in a certain way. Right. Um, and who was enabled by all sorts of, you know, really nefarious characters around him, or whether it's Adam Newman at WeWork, who's, you know, whipping people up and getting people to work for below market wages in order to change the world through renting office space. Right. You know, like it's this kind of, um, I do think, you know, like I follow certain people, like there are certain people that really inspire me that I want to be around, that I want to be, that I want to be with, and I want them to like me, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think there's, there's something to that, but at the same time, there's a really, 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 you know, that can really hook into whatever maybe historical dysfunction we have.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into talking about your own experience. And, you know, I mean, you sent me an uh, essay that you wrote, um, which was just mind blowing about toxic charisma, which I realized was just such a perfect frame for our conversation. Um, But for, you know, people who may not have heard your last interview, can you give us the sort of, you know, condensed version of how in the world you ended up in a cult? (laughs) Yeah, sure.
1: That's a really great question. Um you know, the, the, there's always like the, you know, how did, how did you get in and how did you get out? I think are, are the really, the really, really two interesting questions. And what's fascinating is that if you go and dig into the cult research, you would think that there would be some kind of personality type that would be attracted to cults. And there's, (laughs) it, it really, what the literature tends to say, tends to show is that basically everybody is potentially a cult member at some time in their life and a lot of it has to do with situational, you know where you are situationally. Yeah. So cults tend to attract people when they are in in moments of disruption in their life. So for me, I was you know, I was actually fairly mature, <laughs> well no, not mature. I was fairly old. <laughs> you know like I was I I was in my late 30s, early 40s and was finishing with graduate school, also going through a divorce my which was not my first divorce. And, um, and having, I think that moment that maybe a lot of people can have who haven't achieved what they want to achieve, you know, by middle age where they're like, okay, I I think it's me. I think this is, I think, I think, I I think I'm the common denominator here. And I think Mm -hmm. I need to change something. I think I need to try something new. And so I was both emotionally unstable. I really wanted approval of women, especially, right. Because I was going through this divorce and, and I'd been very unhappy in love through, throughout my life Or i had been serially happy and serially unhappy. I'd been, you know, I, I'd, I'd been, I'd had, this was my third marriage. So I'd had some really intense relationships, lots of, you know, merging and, and, um, you're the, you know, my centering my life around somebody and then slowly watching that turn to hell. And I'd done that a few times and I was like, okay, yeah. Clearly I need to try something new. Clearly I need to try something different. And so I just went to a workshop on, you know, communication and, uh, at a, at a place called One Taste in San Francisco. Actually, the first thing I did there, they did a, they had a blues dancing workshop. It was a couple's blues dancing workshop, but I went there and there were all these women who were attractive and they were vibrant and they seemed to really like me, you know, Like they would, it was like very, very quickly. They were like, Oh, you're so special, you know? And, and, uh, and I wasn't in a, in a state where my, my bullshit detector was going off or not, you know, was not going off or, or they were overriding it in some way. And, and I, it's, it's funny to say this, but, you know, actually one of those women is is still a very close friend of mine. We both left the cult later on. Um, but, it, it we it was this very, very attractive. It was a place that made me feel welcomed, made me feel loved, made me feel cared for. It's it's what they call love bombing. It's it's mm-hmm. all over the cult literature. Very, very yeah. classic. Um, and I was at a place of transition in my life. So I was also finishing graduate school, leaving my wife, and therefore also sort of homeless, looking for a job, looking for the next thing to do, and feeling this sense of. I want to do something that matters. I want to do something that makes a difference in the world. You know, part of it was, I think, altruistic and good. And part of it was maybe, you know, a little bit of ego, egoistical or egotistical, right? Like I want to be, I want to feel like a good person. So a good person, you know, it's that Silicon Valley BS, right? You know, like we're, 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 we're changing, changing the world through non-interlaced video compression or something like that, you know, like everything is about changing the world, even when it doesn't relate to changing the world. And I was very much (laughs) caught up in, in that, um, you know, aughts, uh, (laughs) that the the, the hubris of, of of the era. And we were very connected to Silicon Valley in a lot of ways too. There were a lot of engineers that came to the place. We were, we were actually funded by, uh, a fairly, um, wealthy investor and, and inventor, Mm-hmm. Um, who I also kind of became somewhat close to. So it was a very, in- yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting time and very attractive. And it delivered on its promises in some ways. You know, like all of a sudden there was more sex in my life, there was more attention in my life, there were more hugs in my life, there was more mm-hmm. sense of purpose in my life. And for a while, it was very, very, very attractive and very, well, seductive.
2: Yeah. I I mean, as a single guy, I can't think that I wouldn't enjoy that either. Like, uh, I I appreciate the fact that you, you know, brought up, you know, the idea that your bullshit detector, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, on at that point. And I I think that would be particularly hard for any guy. Like, if you're, you know, in a vulnerable state and you're getting all this attention from attractive women, I think I would be very unlikely to be able to turn on a bullshit detector as well. I'd be like, ah, this is fantastic. So I guess the, the question then is, you know, why do, do people's bullshit detectors not go off or why didn't yours outside of the fact that you're in you know, sort of this emotionally vulnerable state?
1: Well, I think there's a few things. You know, um, in, the, in the, uh, the essay that I wrote that you, that you referenced, which by the way, I'm still looking for a place to publish so you have an idea. Um, the, I, I, I cite the work of, this, of a neuroscientist by the name of Antonio Damasio uh, who wrote a book called um, Descartes' Error and Tomasio is kind of a legend in the field, but one of the things he really looks at is the roles that emotions play in decision-making. And what was really fascinating to me is that he a lot of the patients or a lot of the cases that he worked with are people who have had brain damage in a certain way that makes it almost impossible for them to have an emotion. So they become purely analytical. And you would think that that would lead to better decision-making. But what he found is that people who have that tend to get There's way too much data available to make most decisions. And a lot of it is inconclusive. So uh, one of the stories he tells is somebody trying to decide where to go for dinner. And he literally just spends hours trying to decide where to go for dinner because there's way too much, you know, like where, what proximity, health, what is it? What does it taste like? What does it cost? You know, all of these different factors. And he just sort of can't say, well, what do I like? What do I want? And so what Damasio says is that, um, that emotions actually constrain the, the, the value of emotions is that they constrain the field within which our logical mind will operate. And there's a a cult researcher, a cult survivor and, and, and therapist and researcher named Janja Lalich who wrote a wonderful book called Take Back Your Life. And she articulated this thing called, she calls it bounded choice. So the idea is, is that you have All of your logical faculties are available to you, but they are bounded via emotional attachment to a leader or to a community inside of a sort of nonsensical potentially, right? Like, so for me, what happened was I became, I became very attached to the group. The group was where they became my friends. They became my lovers. They became my job. They became my, where I lived, you know, like, so everything I did became wrapped up in this group. And so I could spend all day, every day thinking about, you know, using pretty good logical fa- faculties. I, I, I'm a pretty logical guy, I, you know, and, and fairly intelligent, at least by standard, you know, definitions, I guess. But all of that intelligence and all of that, that logic was used inside of this bound that said, this organization is the most important organization on the planet. So I couldn't see outside of that boundary and so all of my activity became, you know, like I couldn't see, I, I, it's like not being able to see outside the maze or the labyrinth, right? Like you could, you can spend all of your intelligence and energy inside of the labyrinth, but you can't ever see the walls that you're operating inside of. And that mm. was, you know, sort of the life I lived for two years. Wow. So,
2: you know, I think that the thing that struck me most, I. When I read this article, was the fact that you know last time when we spoke, you were very deliberate about not bringing up the name of the organization. This time, you even called out the leader of the organization. You didn't even you know you didn't hold back about this. And um, what what prompted that change? Uh, Like why why now, then why did
1: you you come out? Well, there are two things. Uh, First off, I sent you an unpublished version of the article. The article hasn't been published yet. Um, and I, and I debate, you know, honestly, there are, um, some, I, I'm under, I, as I understand it, there's some open legal cases against the organization and against the leader right now. Mm-hmm. There are things that I don't, you know, I certainly, you know, don't, <laughs> don't want to get involved in. Right. I don't want to be implicated or anything like that. Right. But at the same time, I think I really do. I, I don't think anything good happens in the world without some degree of risk and boldness. And I think right now, the other piece is just even talking about the cult. I've even, when I first started talking about it, I talked about it under a pseudonym. So there's all sorts of layers of anonymity or, um, you know, me talking about it uh, without naming it. That was kind of one step. Um, Step before that was me talking about it without naming myself. Um, Recently, I was on another podcast where I was not named, but the organization was named, right? <laughs> but it was still my mm-hmm. voice, right? And so the, all these layers. And so now, you know, you, you get the, the the scoop, right? This is the, you're you're the first time where my name and the name of the organization are really being atta- attached to each other yeah. in a public way. And I can't say, you know, like I've sat down with, you know, frankly, my lawyer would tell me not to do any, you know, not to say anything because he always says, you know, you know what lawyers say. Lawyers say <laughs> no. Sound like lawyers. Yeah. 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 They just say, they just say, don't, they just say, remove all risk. You know, unplug your computer from the internet, um, and and then you'll avoid viruses, right? But, but I do think there's real value in talking about the specific dynamics that I experienced inside this organization, and also, you know, frankly, when I watch the courage with which people like Leah Remini um, talking about Scientology, or Sarah and Nippy and Mark Vicente, and and all of them talking about Nexium, which, by the way, our group and Nexium, I think, shared some very very s- very common DNA, um, wow. and then I think there's also the other side of it where there's a dynamic inside. When people leave cults, um, we all do it in sort of different ways, uh, and we all, and there's a but there's a very common actually. We, we we talked I think before we turned on the the record about Matthew Remsky's work over at Conspirituality. Mm-hmm. but one of the things he talks about is I got mineism, and the I got mineism is well, the organization was pretty good for me. I don't know what happened to those other people, but you know I got something out of it yeah. and i I understand that I actually got a lot out of my involvement with one taste you know their some of their techniques or technologies or practices I found very valuable and, and in some ways, I also got to explore some things in life that I probably wouldn't have gotten to otherwise being the the kind of nervous and and uptight dude that I was, it also got me to hit a kind of crazy bottom, which allowed me to unpack my life and put it back together in a much, much more productive way. So they didn't intend to do that, but I got that out of it because, you know, leaving and being and recovering was such a valuable experience for me as well. Mm. But, um, I do think it's important to really talk about what we're talking about. Um, not to, I don't want to talk in code anymore. And, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be successful enough in my career that, you know, I can take some more i can take more gambles than maybe i maybe i could have a few years ago when i was you know kind of broke and putting my life back together
2: yeah well so one of the things that you say in in the essay is that to lead a happy and productive life we must learn how to recognize when charisma is being used maliciously and how we can avoid being taken in by it if we don't understand toxic charisma we open ourselves up to heartbreak loss and exploitation and yet you know on the surface what looks like toxic charisma is incredibly charismatic you know like to your point you know how does elizabeth holmes you know end up getting that many people to believe in something that's a total fraud how does adam newman walk away with a billion dollars um you know relatively unscathed while all these other people got screwed and so i wonder you know first off like how how do we overlook this like what what happens because you know, when I think about this, I, I kind of wonder if some of the, the sort of, you know, top personal development people in the world fall into this category of toxically charismatic.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. And one of the questions I'm going to, so I'm going to, I'm going to get your question in a sec. Cause one but one of the things you yeah. bring up for me is, did they start off charismatic yeah. or, or I'm not trying did they start off toxic? Right. Mm-hmm. Or did they learn how to cuz this is this is something i think i always wonder when i see somebody doing something that i think is kind of a grift right which i think is so common right now among internet influencers and even and personal development world right mm-hmm. where people sell really expensive programs or they sell supplements based on how attractive they are or how funny they are you know like um okay so one one person I go into in the article and, and, and who's really top of mind for me right now is JP Sears. Right. That stood out to me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I thought he was funny as hell when I first saw him, you know, like he's sort of Mm self-deprecating and, uh, you know, his how to be ultra spiritual. I just, I loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was so fun and so funny. And I, you know, I didn't necessarily really follow his work, but then now I find you know, here it is a few years later and and over the course of the last year I've become very aware of him and I've and I've followed his stuff a lot more closely and a lot of the critique of it. He's anti-mask, anti-vax. Um he's, you know, on one podcast with uh he he was talking about threatening violence to a to public health workers who are going to vaccinate in it his is. community, you know, just in this offhand kind of like silly kind of way. And then he's like, it's just jokes, it's just jokes, right? So he's attracted a bunch of people and and, and he slowly, I think, turned toxic. I think in the beginning he wasn't, at least because it was sort of like he was making fun of himself and a community he was part of, and now he's making fun of other people. And it's just yeah. like really sort of gross, cutting, weird stuff It's that I find, maybe I don't have a sense of humor, but I just don't find funny. But the thing is, the dude monetizes his stuff by selling supplements and selling life coaching courses. So the more attention he gets, the more money he makes. Yeah. And I think there's this dynamic when you're, when you're charismatic, that you, especially now in the age of of the internet, right, you can monetize that stuff, right? You can, and monetization is, is a, and you can not only monetize it, but you can get ego strokes from it as well. People telling you how funny you are, how great you are, how amazing you are Mm -hmm. buying your bullshit. And sometimes I think people start off saying, I'm going to say what I believe, and then I'm going to get some attention. And then I'm going to monetize that attention. And that's going to be a, you know, a good thing. And then they start saying, I'm going to say what gets attention because I'm monetizing that attention. Right. And then they maybe even start to believe that thing that they're saying, right? You know, and I, and I really don't know where that, you know, power corrupts, right? When people, mm-hmm. uh, when people get told, you need know, like Adam Newman, you tell him he's, you, t- you tell a 30 year old, he's Jesus Christ. Who, Scott Galloway loves to say this, right? You tell, you tell a 30 year old, he's Jesus Christ and he's going to believe you. Right. Yeah. And so I can't, I really can't unpack that because I can't see inside people's heads, but what I can do and what my intent was in the article and my, what i people would love to talk about some here is I can't talk about what makes somebody toxic, why they become toxic, but I can help you understand when you are in the thrall of somebody who is toxic to you and potentially what to do about it. And that's really, that's really what I'm interested in.
2: I think that, you know, the the thing that I I thought was fascinating, you say that demagogues speak to fears and prejudices because they know that it will make people feel cared for and they're easier to influence. Gaining trust without earning it is the essence of charisma. And this is something, you know, I, I, you know, writing this new book called Not Another Damn Self-Help Book, in which I'm actually questioning, you know, a lot of, of, you know, sort of personal development and and asking people to consider whatever advice they get in the context of their own lives, which is why, you know, even in my community, I almost every time I teach something, I give it with a caveat. Out that you should consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is bullshit, because it might be. Um, like I can't <clears throat> claim that I'm the authority figure on this. Yeah, I have experience, but I feel like people often w- what happens so often, and I see this, I've seen this with people who follow our own guests, where they treat guidance as gospel. And so, you know, one, you know, why is it that that we have this whole idea of there's something missing? Like, that seems like the easiest thing to prey on. And these people really take advantage of that. And, you know, I see it, like you said, I mean, influencers do the same thing. Uh, And you actually say toxic charisma is essentially a a confidence game, a con, a shady salesman may trick us out of money or might give up our lives for the ego of a charismatic leader or or any number of shades in between. And like, I almost kind of feel like, you know, I I could look back at people that I have met as a byproduct of doing this work and say, yeah, they fall into that category. Some of them might even be our own peers. Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um sorry what can you ask the question again yeah i guess was more way? more yeah. common than a yeah. question really yeah um is, is that you know like
2: how is it that, that we actually you know don't recognize this and and um you know the thing is that people are being exploited and yet nobody seems to acknowledge this you know i like one of the things i remember hearing Um, was, you know, what a, a typical Tony Robbins seminar is like, obviously, you know, lights down low, blaring music, room cold, like everything that basically will cause people's rational thinking to shut off. And Uh, Somebody had told me a story where he gives this really emotional speech and it turns out the whole thing is a sales pitch. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a friend told me another, you know, well-known leader in our space, you know, does something very similar and gets all these really charismatic people to get up on stage. And she said, literally, people walk to the back of the room, open their checkbooks and sign $10,000 checks. And so often they're spending money they don't even have.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've done it. I've, I've gone to those, one of those landmark, uh, graduations and and ended up putting money down. I never actually went to the landmark thing, but it was, it was clearly a, you know, we're going to put you in a certain emotional state and then we're going to ask you to make a rational decision about your finances. Right. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, and I, and I think it's, I find it toxic. Right. So, um, in, in my article, I also reference, um, Terry Cole, if you don't know her work, she, she, she's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, she has. Yes. Yes. Terry, Terry's great. So, and one of the things she says is like, look, um, here's some ways to kind of like figure out whether or not somebody is, is, is kind of pulling a, pulling a game on you. Right. One, you know, like, are they introducing, like, is it, is it, are they making you feel urgent? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that, uh, that, you know, by now, or you're gonna missing out, you know, which is, which is really, really common. I think that's the scenario that you're describing or yeah. are they saying that, you know, that there's, that there's a, a certain truth that you can only, that's, that you can only get here. It's the in out game. And at one taste, man, we played that game all the time, right? Like we were the cool people. You are not the cool people. We right. had all sorts of inside language that kind of reinforced it, um and we did it very, very conscious i mean we did it extremely consciously, like mm-hmm. we would even talk behind the scenes about who we were going to push out so they would come back in right, so they mm-hmm. would feel outside, and then they would kind of you know you you talk about the 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 pickup community i've kind of yeah. the, I, i've spent a little bit of time around it, right the idea of negging right that you that you put somebody down so they will then seek your approval. Right. Which is also Mm -hmm. another one of Terry's points. Right. Do I feel compelled to seek the approval of this person? Um, and so, but I think there's all these like sort of markers. So I guess your question is, is like, how does this happen? It happens by design very, very often. I think, I think, um, people like sales techniques are scare the hell out of you. Right. Um, and then inspire the hell out of you and then do it in mm. sort of, and then love bomb you, right? Like, like, uh, if you keep going this way, your life is going to, is going to be terrible. It's going to turn to shit, right? Yep. Um, we have a unique way to do that, but you have to act now. And then it's, and so it's these, it's not one thing, but it's, and people, people do it in in a variety of ways and with a variety of you know, when when you're in the presence of someone who's doing it poorly, it's just so obvious. It's like, okay, what are you doing, buddy? I, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I, I totally see through you, but it can happen. There are some people like, this is something they say about Bernie Madoff, like Bernie Madoff, he actually was like, oh, I'm too full. I can't take on any more investors. And he also never promised like wild um, returns. He's like, no, no, I'm going to give you slightly better than market but very steady returns over a very long time. And that was how he, you know, and he was very convincing, which is also what you hear people say every time you hear an interview about Adam Newman. Adam was Mm -hmm. very convincing is this like phrase that comes up again and again. And it's these people who are just like, they exude a certain kind of authority. They exude a certain kind of um, compassion towards you and empathy towards you. It can be very performative and they pull you in. and, And often it's very, um, there's a cold reading aspect to it too, right? Where you can sort of, they can look into you. Now, Nicole Daydon, the founder of One Taste, like she was really good at this, where you could be in a whole room full of people and you would feel like she was talking directly to you, directly to yeah. your concerns, directly to into your heart, into your soul. Like she was so good at it and you felt seen, you felt loved, and you felt like, uh, I want to, I want to, I want to give her everything. I want to give her all of my time, all of my energy, my money, everything. And I saw this, I saw her do this again and again and again. Mm. Wow.
2: So I, I think the, this is, you know, the, the realization I came to with a seduction community is that I pushed this sort of desire to improve to a point of diminishing returns where we were looking at our lives and like, we don't actually, you know, we're not attractive women because all we're obsessed with is how to be more attractive to women. Like, have you guys realized how ridiculous this is? And, you know, when my friends and I started to finally sort of shake out, like, you know, it involved going to the therapy to like undo all this damage. I mean, even when I worked with Nick Notice, who was a dating coach, he told me, he said the hardest guys to coach are the ones who've been through the seduction community because he said, I have to undo so much baggage and bullshit. And he himself had been through all of that. And yeah. uh, so like what is it that you know gets people to that point of of diminishing returns and and more importantly like why don't they recognize it when they've reached it
1: yeah so the as i understand you know sort of the the underlying sort of cultic dynamic so I, we've i've talked about love bombing right so yeah. love bombing gets you in and it makes you feel like i'm part of this community and you know i can, i i still like i'm i'm still like thinking back on There were moments that I had that are some of the most sort of spiritual and satisfying that I can still even access today, right? Thinking back on how I felt, how approved of I felt, how loved I felt, how loving I felt towards everybody around me. Um, It was really in some ways, sort of a peak neurological experience. But then what happens is, you know, again, the sort of scarcity, right? We just were talking about it with Bernie Madoff and others, right? Is that they will then sort of push you out. And so it's, I think it's very akin to a, what drives uh, sort of narcotics addiction, right? Is like the first high is amazing and the subsequent highs just aren't as good. And you're always chasing that initial experience, that initial high. And you don't really notice that while you're chasing that high, that you're not, because your your logical brain is then, you know, constrained and bounded by, you know, this emotional attachment you have to the group or to the leader. That you're not really noticing, well, wait a minute. I joined because I wanted to get this particular outcome. And, like, am I going to benchmark again? You know, and, and certainly they don't encourage you to benchmark against that outcome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, and there's also an irony to it as well, because many of these groups say, I'm going prom- to promise you freedom. I promise you freedom from want, freedom from your own mind, freedom from your own desires, you know, like the, the sort of classical spiritual right. um, come on but the business model of the group is dependence <laughs> right Absolutely. you know yeah. so they don't want you to leave really and mm. so as soon you know and, and so um actually it's funny i just heard uh uh nippy and sarah from Nexium talking about this with matthew remsky their podcast but that they were saying like that the that as soon as you got some achievement then your problem was now your attachment to that achievement and you had to you know uh and so what was interesting for me is like when I went into one taste I went in because I was trying to I guess fix my relationships with women you know it, it was mm-hmm. sold as a kind of communication course and and you know um sexual experience or you know skill or you know having some facility with 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 both sexuality as well and communication and it very quickly became a spiritual endeavor, which is not what yeah. I went to it for. I didn't go to it because I wanted to become enlightened, but all of a sudden <laughs> they're talking about being enlightened. And I understand like, after I left that they were even like, um, uh, they had like priests, you know, <laughs> and, and priests, you know, they, like the religious language became really, really overt, which it wasn't when I was yeah. there. But, um, but yeah, I think it's like, the, you know, you just keep moving the goalposts and keep selling mm-hmm. somebody, somebody, something else. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, I love that you brought up that they, they don't, you know, benchmark against the original goal you came in with, because, you know, you go and even to something like the seduction community, 90% of the guys there probably were there to find a girlfriend and, you know, the benchmark then becomes, no, your problem is that you want a girlfriend and your solution is to sleep with as many women as possible. So that then, you know, changes the benchmark, which I just, you kind of realize that, wow, we just, you know, everything goes off the rails at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you create a need uh, they can never yeah. be filled, right? The, you know, yeah, yeah.
2: So let let's go back into this uh, idea of influencers because I think you know these are the people that we're most exposed to. I mean, hell, every single person who comes on this show would fall into this category of influencer. Um, And you know, I I, I was writing about the fact that I think you know, like I said, you know, a mother of three who works three, a mother of three children who works three jobs to put food on the tables an influencer. Mother Teresa is an influencer, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't influence shit. <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, and but I think that we've taken this whole influencer label so far that, you know, when people are like, I'm an influencer, I was like, what the fuck does that even mean? What do you influence? Yeah. Uh, but you you make this point to say that, you know, they influencers turn charisma into currency by monetizing clicks, which can make it hard to determine who believes what they say and who believes that, you know, what they say will get them noticed. And there's so many people who are, are doing that. You know, I mean, this is one of my sort of ways to filter for podcast guests is to like, you know, look through my bullshit detector first and say, is there any legitimacy to what this person is saying? You know, and so often what I've seen is people building massive brands, patching, packaging their shit as pseudo, you know, as science, even though it's pseudoscience, because it's just based on a sample size of one and, you know, building, Movements around it. I mean, I won't name any names. Some of them have even been guests on the show, Uh, and you realize, like, is there any legitimacy or credibility to what this person is saying?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's such a that's such a tough one for me, because um, you know I'm, I'm friends with people, and sometimes I like dig into their stuff, and I'm like, oh, I don't know whether. I, I'm becoming much more, I think, also less black and white in my thinking. You know, where I can, where yeah. I can, you know, and and. and a lot of what I try to do is to read from a lot of different sources because I think people yeah. can be extremely convincing, and they can be extremely convincing based on very shoddy data sets. And I think some of those data sometimes that's because people are using you know themselves as their only you know a, a, as the only data. Hey, it worked for me; it'll work for you, right? That's the that's yeah. a really common come on. And then the, and then sometimes you get people. Um, I've been unpacking, um, Sam Harris's work a lot recently, you know, like, cause I, I find myself, you know, sort of disagreeing with him and I'm like, well, but he makes a lot of sense and he's, he's clearly a smart guy. And then I, I, you know, went to this whole sort of deep dive on some of the data sets that he uses that are really, you know, like he's using retracted studies to make points that are, let's call it politically problematic at times. Right. Like, yeah. and so, and I, and I think, so sometimes there are people who really play very either intentionally or unintentionally play very fast and loose with data or the data that they care about. Cause I think you get this, you know, you're in the podcast world, you're in the sort of influence world. And one of the things I really like about you is like, and and I'm so honored to kind of have been on your podcast so many times Is I don't have that many followers and that's sort of by design and sort of by laziness and sort of by lack of skill. Um, but, uh, and, and maybe even through distrust at times as well, because I think there is this, well, how many followers do you have? Okay. You have this many followers, so you can broadcast this to your list and this will grow my list by this percentage. And I'm going to monetize <laughs> this list in this way. Right. And so what, what I've seen, you know, kind of, you know, and, you know, my wife is also, you know, she was in the in the influencer world to a certain degree as yeah. well for a long time that, you know, I've been at parties where people will say, how big is your list? And I'm like, what the, what the hell, <laughs> you know, like the, and, and really what they're asking is how seriously should I take you? Yeah. Um, and, and so we've social proof is valuable, right? You know, like some, mm-hmm. you know, like we, we want to check other check, check our bullshit detector by saying, well, what do, I think gossip has a real value. Like, does somebody walk their talk? Like we want to, we want to know that at times, yeah. but at time, but I think in the age of social media, you know, like it's hacked our brains in so many ways. And one of the ways it's hacked us is that the more, you know, likes and subscribes you see on somebody's list, you're like, oh, well, you know, the more important that person is, it's like the the more dollar, you know, I see on the price tag of a bottle of wine, the better I sort of somehow naturally think that bottle of wine is, unless I know a lot about wine or have spent a lot of time, um, you know, questioning that. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, we openly say on our contact form, we don't give a shit how many followers you have. We don't care less how many books we've sold. And we've turned down, you know, really high profile people who everybody else says yes to. Um, I I pride myself on that. I I think that you bring up an incredibly important point, which is context. You know, like I, my two most important mentors are practically invisible on the internet. Uh, One of them had 150 followers when I met him, which is why I think that one of our biggest mistakes we make when it comes to this is to judge somebody's credibility by how they present themselves online because we know anybody can manufacture the appearance of authenticity and legitimacy nowadays.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe people are really good at um so you know I did my undergrad in in philosophy and you know, sort of, so cognitive biases and, and, and logical fallacies. It's kind Mm -hmm. of funny to to speak as an ex cult member to be like, I'm really, I really care about logical fallacies and cognitive biases, but I do, I spend a lot of time thinking about those and I, and, and sort of checking myself for those. And what I find is, and what's really interesting is I think also intelligence can sometimes work against us, right? So one of the things Mm -hmm. that the data will tell us too, is that the more, that the smarter people are, often the better they are at defending their own, um, biases. Right. <laughs> yep. And so, so true. yeah. And so I see this, I, I, I feel like you see this a lot in the, in the social media world. So for myself, you know, I left Twitter a little while ago. I left mm-hmm. Facebook a little while ago. I'm still on Instagram, but you know, it's, it's on probation right now. Um, I stay on LinkedIn because it's definitely valuable for business for me. Um, it is where I, it is where you know, people find me so I can I, I can do work for them, but I'm also very cautious about really engaging in anything that's meaningful in text-based communication. Even you know, like I find wow. if I want to have a good conversation with somebody, I either I want to do it in one of two ways: either I want to do it like we're doing it now, sort of voice to voice, or you know, ideally when all this pandemic is over, face to face, and and, yeah. and really um, spending time with somebody in sort of a deep way. And then the other is to write about it. And so um I'm in I, I'm now, you know, putting I put myself on sort of a program where I'm writing a personal essay, a, a sort of meaty personal essay about once a quarter. Um it's about all I have time for given my other commitments, but really trying to challenge myself to write the hardest thing that I think I can, the thing that I think mm-hmm. I understand the least. Um, and really doing my best to both be very clear about what it is I believe, what it is I know, and why I know it, you know, really trying to understand the epistemology of what it is I'm saying. And then two, sharing it with people and saying, what do you see in this, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what am I missing? What, what, what does your life experience? And I try to, you know, have readers and friends and community who come from a variety of, you know, backgrounds, you know, I want people who, where different gender identities and, and different racial backgrounds and, and, you know, families of origin. And, and I'd like to have that sort of, I think having that richer feedback on how it is I'm showing up in the world, how, what I'm saying, I think about, you know, semiotics a lot, right? Like that, what, you know, that the, the context into which we say something mm. is important. The context from which we say something is important. And the communication is what happens between the context into which we are speaking and the context from which we're speaking from yeah. And that we cannot see that by ourselves, and so that in many ways we are works in progress, and we're co-created by our communities. And so, having people in my life and having a community around me—not a cult around me, because the cult is all mm-hmm. thinking the same thing and all looking for the same leader to the same leader to the same sort of mental framework—but really challenging my thinking as much as I can from as many yeah. different angles as I can. Um, I think it keeps me honest. It keeps me happy. And, and hopefully at some point it'll result in an essay or two that's really valuable for the world. So,
2: yeah, I I think what you, what you're really talking about here is self-awareness. I mean, this is why I try to bring on, you know, as many different perspectives as I can. You know, I will talk to people who are extremely religious because I want to learn, you know, how they see the world and what I can learn from them. You know, I've had people like I've reached out to former white supremacists because I want to talk to them. I want to find out why they have thought this way. Um, And I think that that's so important because we tend to consume so much content in an echo chamber. Like I realized after a certain point, and I I think I wrote about this the other day, it was like lifestyle design versus life by design and how, you know, we got to early 2009, you know, Tim Ferriss's four hour work week becomes sort of, you know, mainstream in the zeitgeist. And suddenly the narrative is this is the way that you are supposed to live a, a really amazing and rewarding life. and we suddenly started to discount normal, you know, it's like, oh, you know, like we would see people who work nine to five jobs and, you know, lived relatively normal lives as beneath us. And I was like, who's to say those people aren't happier? Uh, And why are, who are we, you know, in our sort of entrepreneurial sort of high horse to say, oh, you know, the way I live is better. Like I realized like that's absolute bullshit. I think this whole year for me has been really the last year and a half has been really looking at my own work through context and saying, okay, consider everything that you know, you hear from me or any guest or anybody for that matter in the context of your own life, because it might not be true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really actually, Alex and I talk about this a lot. You know, this has been a hard year for a lot of people, um, our, yeah. us included. It's also been really rich in that it's given me time and space to do a, an awful lot of reflection. Cause I used to spend a lot of time in airplanes and traveling and running around yeah. to, to different things. And, and so with that removed, I, I, developed a much more serious sort of introspection practice the first in a, in, in a little while. And then we've also had some real challenges, you know, mental health problems in our families and, and, you know, the fear of the pandemic and health problems and a variety. And, you know, I'm 55, uh, I turn 56 fairly soon. Um, which I always remind myself is like the age that Steve Jobs died at, you know, like, and, and what have you done with your life, you know? yeah. And so, and And so this idea of like well what is what is a, what makes for a good life or what makes what makes a life meaningful and worthwhile? And the best I've come up with uh, is that I want to do my best to do really good work. i want to you know like and my work is about writing, my work is also about I do a lot of work with organizations and and helping them with decision making and team development and those kinds of things. And I'm doing my best to to pick the organizations that I think are are net positives for the world. And mm-hmm. to pick topics that I think are topics that should be investigated. But I also don't get to, you know, there's this, There's a this saying, it also comes out of 12-step, but I think it comes out of a sort of a, an older, you know, sort of tri- Christian monastic tradition, which is like, you have a right to your labor, but what you don't have a right to is the fruits of the labor, right? Like. Yeah. And I think we've inverted that, or we inverted that in the personal development, you know, bonanza that we went on, you know, starting in the mid 2000s, where everybody, it was all about lifestyle design, right? Which is all about the fruits of the labor, but not necessarily about what the what the labor was, what the quality was. Many, as a matter of fact, many people were trying to, you know, retire early and retire often, right? You know, like get out, of the, get out of the rat race, be completely free, go to Burning Man all the time, have fun, take drugs, have sex. But, you know, I think where and, and I've certainly participated in that world and had fun in that world, but where I'm coming back to more and more is that like, it's really the quality of work and the quality of relationships is what makes for a meaningful and a good life for me. And I may never be famous. I may never have much of an impact except for the people right around me. And as long as I, you know, live until I die, I guess that's okay.
2: As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm really excited about something totally new called an airspace that gives you an opportunity to participate in the show and ask your questions. All you have to do is submit a question and either a guest or I reply, you'll get an email letting you know. And all you have to do is go to unmistakablecreative.com participate. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com participate. I can't think of a better way to wrap up this conversation. Um, So I have one final question for you, which I know I've asked you multiple times. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Hmm. Well, it could be recency bias um, because of what I was just talking about. But I think what I look for is when I think about the people in my, in my life that would, that would match that description, it's people who are unapologetically themselves and, you know, willing to be bold, be definitive, take risks, and then also have a kind of humility and curiosity that sits behind it. And I, and I, you know, I I sometimes go back to like Otto Schwarmer's work around presence, right? This idea that like, I don't know exactly how to describe what presence is, but I know what it is I, when I feel it, when I'm, when I'm in somebody's presence. So somebody who is who can be present with me either virtually or hopefully not virtually soon, right? Um, that, that's what really makes the difference for me.
2: Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your perspective and your insight uh, as a part of this series. I mean, I knew I knew it was kind of a no-brainer to bring you back, and this has been really, really thought-provoking. Uh, where can people find out more about you uh, and your work and everything they you up to, given that we know you're not on social media anymore?
1: <laughs> sure thing. Um, well, I run a small little company along with my wife. We, we're called The Alignment Company, and we help um, leaders align their teams uh, on all levels so they can maximize their performance. So uh, alignmentco.com is where you can find all things um, Bob Gower these days. Bobgower.com, it's still there, but it, uh, but it hasn't been updated in a while. So maybe, <laughs> maybe go to alignmentco. Co. Amazing. And for
2: everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.